regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I hurt you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of God. Thank you. Please be seated. Yeah, thank you. A few days back, uh, I'm a PhD student, by the way, and so a few days back, I was listening to other PhD students, and one of the questions, if they, if they are in their final year, they often ask themselves is, uh, if someone is ever going to read their work, <laughs> because, it's, <laughs> because it's, just, it's just too technical, too specialized, and sometimes it's just going to gather dust in one corner of a library. All those who are PhD, they can feel what they feel. <laughs> and probably I have started feeling that pressure as well. So when Kuhn asked me to preach, I thought I'll come here and just vomit all the knowledge that I have. <laughs> all with technicalities and specialities, I will just pour it out. And uh, the temptation was strong, but thankfully I have avoided it. <laughs> and rather I'm going to speak about something else. So for last few weeks or months even, Kuhn has been preaching about the kingdom already not yet. And as I was listening to this, I was also thinking uh, what it means for our today. What happens if kingdom has come and has, not already, uh, has already come but not yet fully come? What it means for our today? What does it mean for our here and now? If kingdom has come, what do I do today? What do I do when I go to school, when I go to college? What does this kingdom have to do with my life? Uh, what do I do when there's a question of choosing a career for me? If it's a question of uh, choosing a job uh, or life partner, what do I do? Uh, how does this kingdom, does this kingdom that is already not yet have anything to do with my here and now? That's the question that I was facing, and then I thought that, uh, let me uh, find out how, what does the Bible say about it. And so, my message today is the kingdom and the world. My world, the world today that I live in, what does that have to do with the kingdom that has come, but not yet come? Uh, writing in 1841, a German philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach had this to, say, uh, this to say about Christianity. He says, the world has no interest for Christians. The Christian thinks only of himself 
and the salvation of his soul. Now, this book is a, it's a critique of Christianity, and that was long back. It was in 1841. So I don't know if things have changed now. Hopefully, they have. Uh, but in that age, around 18, uh, early 19th century, uh, if you look at the theology of uh, Christian faith, you would, not, uh, you would not disagree with what he's saying. Uh, for example, let's look at this hymn that we have sung many times. The first stanza is beautiful. The, the, the lyricist looks at creation and he says, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. It's amazing. I look at creation and I feel like it's just glorifying your name. And the last stanza then goes, When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home. <laughs> he is going to, this is a beautiful world. But never mind, he's going to take me home. He's going to pull me out. He's going to rapture me out and take me home. And that will be my perfect joy. What happens to this world? Uh, it doesn't say what happens to this world. So what happens to this world when kingdom has come and not yet come? Um, I want to give you at least three points, and that's a standard preaching, so you should be happy about it. I'm going to give three points about how, how do we relate uh, as citizens of this kingdom that is already not yet with or to our present world. And these three points that I'm going to give you, each point talks about a certain posture we take concerning the world. The first point that I want to talk about is this, we stand with the world. Uh, so I, I'm using this verb stand, and we stand in different postures. So for now, the first point is we stand with the world. Uh, now in Christian understanding, from beginning, there is a distinction between God as creator and what has been created as creation. So there is this single identity between all that has been created, and that identity is that of being creation. And that is an identity that ties us to the rest of the world. Uh, and whereas God is different because he's creator and the rest of us are creation. But that also means that we are related to this creation in two ways, uh, or two different parts of creation that we are related with. The first one that uh, I would highlight is we stand with humanity. Regardless of religion, regardless of race, regardless of color, we stand with humanity. In the recent past, and if you are again, uh, most of us are students here, you would realize that sociology tells us that we are part of our culture. We are deeply rooted in our culture. What we believe is a lot of times shaped by our culture and the context that we live in. Um, uh, if you look at... Uh, I mean, just to give in another example would be, if you, are, if you have come from a poor country, it's very hard for Christians to live a rich life when they are part of a poor country. Because, because we are part of the country that we live in, because we are part of the humanity that we live with, humans that we live with, we are deeply rooted from where we come, where we are born, where we, the language that we speak, the language we pick up, the idioms that we use, this, is all, this all shapes us. This is why even Bible says in, Jer in Jeremiah chapter 29, 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
pray to the Lord. Now remember, God is saying, I have carried you into exile, even for that city. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, the people who have exiled you, if they prosper, you too will prosper. Because there is that connection that we have with larger humanity, and that, uh, that means that if, if people prosper, we prosper. If people are blessed, we are blessed, because we are one with them. But also beyond this concern for the prosperity of our own and of our city, uh, Christian faith also tells us that there is something else that unites us with other uh, creation and other humans, which is the fact that we all are created in the image of God. That has been a, a very distinctively Christian value uh, that perhaps those who lived in the West do not see it that way, but those who come from outside can definitely recognize it. That the fact that a person, a human being, is made in the image of God has been such a crucial factor in the history of humanity. This is one doctrine that has had impact on how Christians think about war. For example, a lot of Christians think about not going to war because they believe that all humans are created in the image of God and killing a human being is to distort the image of God further or even to destroy it. Um, this, uh, people have thought of, about abortion based on this uh, doctrine. People have thought about euthanasia here in the Netherlands uh, particularly. Or capital punishment, should we allow capital punishment or not? And Christians have taken their stand based on this one doctrine that no, because people and humans are made in the image of God. So in this sense, because we are made in the image of God, all humans, what happens to others happens to us. What happens to us happens to others. It affects all of us. As I said, sometimes I, 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 I think that we make of this doctrine of the image of God in humanity, we take it too lightly. Uh, if we look around us, and especially if you, if you have had experience of living in many cultures, or at least two cultures, cultures over, your, over the period of your life, we quickly notice that how different cultures generate different hierarchies. You know, hierarchies based on color, based on race, based on financial status. And in some places, within the color of skin, even skin complexions, people have raised hierarchies. You know, these hierarchies often come in different shapes and sizes. Um, some are more covert and some more overt. The belief in the image of God shared by humanity have challenged these hierarchies in different places and different cultures. And if you want to know more about that, it's very important to read how this uh, doctrine has transformed so many nations. In contrast, and this is also true, whenever the belief uh, that humans are made in the image of God has been eclipsed or, or ignored by constructing other beliefs about humanity, cultures have suffered immense loss of humanity and, pro and the protection of human lives. Uh, and you see that falling, that, that graph falling there. In the past few years and past few weeks now, we have seen some disturbing images of uh, the war that is going on, first in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and now between uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, as Kuhn has been saying in, this, uh, in his uh, sermons, and I, I, I agree with this, no matter what our stand on the issue is, 
uh, no matter where we stand on this discussion and debate, because it's sometimes even easy and convenient us for, for us to have discussions about it. There are people who cannot have discussions about it. But no matter where we stand, um, let us always remember that for Christians, the theology of for, for Christians, the theology of creation tells us, the, the belief in the image of God tells us that when one human is destroyed, it is tantamount to destroying God's image uh, in, in that particular person. We are destroying the image of God, and that should help us to navigate issues like this. So in short, we, sh we share a bond with uh, uh, a human bond with our brothers and sisters, and what happens to the rest of humanity affects us. But not just humanity, we, in a very particular sense, we also share a bond with the world uh, as we stand with non-human creation. And this is something I'm giving a glimpse of what I'm going to speak on November 11. <laughs> but we also share a bond with non-human creation. Uh, you see, when God creates human beings, he takes humans from soil. Already there is a bond between soil and humans. Uh, we are taken from the natural world. So some years back, um, uh, there was this some uh, very popular astrophysicist who said that we are stardust. <laughs> so in a sense, we have this connection with the natural world because we are created from its soil. But not just that. Just like natural world, we also long for salvation of our bodies, right? In, in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, Paul makes a connection between human body and natural world because both are longing for salvation when he says, for we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers agony together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves while we await eagerly our adoption, the redemption of our body. There is a strong connection between our redemption, the redemption of our body, and the redemption of the natural world. In this sense, uh, and, and the climate uh, activists tell us today that what happens to the world, it's going to affect us. And they are right in that sense. What happens to the world is going to affect us because this is the only world we have to live in, at least as of now. <laughs> um, I have a, uh, my wife got this uh, beautiful uh, magnet on the fridge which says that uh, save planet because the only, it's the only one with chocolate, <laughs> with chocolate, but I'm not uh, saying that, I'm saying that we save the planet because our, our existence depends uh, on it. And so what happens to the natural world affects us. Um, but we also go beyond the people who are warning us about the climate change, and we say, what happens to the natural world is in the first place because of what has happened to humans, to us. When, the relationship, when our relationship was broken with God, we became self-centered, we became greedy for more and more, and that's how we destroy the natural world. So what has happened to natural world is also what we have done to it by cutting off ourselves from God. In, uh, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, the uh, Bible says, The righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Uh, it's a righteous thing to care for an animal. God himself shows care for animals, even for land, 
if you know uh, in the book of uh, sorry in the in the first uh, in the pentateuch in the first five books of the bible in the new testament he takes it even further and says that i'm going to include the whole world in my redemption plan and that's why when you look at the images of heaven the images are very uh, very natural images uh, the lion sitting with the lamb uh, you know wolves sitting with the lamb the child is sitting with uh, the, the animals that are considered dangerous today, uh, but not afraid of them. These are very natural images because the Lord includes the whole world in his redemption plan. So now enough about standing with the world. You might think, where am I going with this? But I also want to tell you that we not only stand with the world, but we also stand against the world. Right. Uh, isn't there contradiction here? <laughs> Uh, well, it seems to be so, because if you look at the biblical verses, I give you like five verses, at least three here, okay. First one from First John 2.15, do not love the world. Uh, James 1.27, do not be polluted by the world. Uh, Romans 12.1, do not be confirmed to this world. So we stand with the world, but we also consider the world polluted. It is already also stained. It's also uh, something that we can easily confirm to. Romans chapter 12 is, uh, is uh, if you, there is a version of the Bible, it's called the Message Bible. Uh, I don't always follow it, uh, but sometimes it brings out the message really well. And so Romans chapter 12 in the Message Bible reads this way. Uh, don't become so well ad adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. <laughs> Instead, fix your attention on God. So at first glance, these verses seem to suggest that we are somehow supposed to be against the world. And yes, indeed, we are up against the world. But what is it that sets us against the world? Um, I think... Paul, when in, Ephesians, when in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, when Paul said this, he, he clarified what it means to stand against the world. For he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, because flesh and blood is something that actually makes us stand with the world, right? So our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world uh, world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Uh, so we stand against the world because the world, there are forces of power that operates in this world. We stand against the world because the world has chosen, influenced by these powers, to rebel against God. And we stand against the world in its rebellion against God. We stand against, uh, against it simply because it has chosen to stand against God. If you take a stand like this, I think it helps us navigate through a lot of uh, issues that we face today. Uh, let me give an example. So I, I, I grew up in, in Salvation Army Church. But my knowledge of Salvation Army's theology and everything else uh, came in very late. I just knew that I am a member of Salvation Army Church, but nothing beyond that. Uh, I did not even, uh, at young age, I did not know the name of founder either. But later on, I came to know about the, this founder and I started reading his theology. 
He was a man who was very much committed to social justice in the world. And this is what he wrote, which became very popular uh, in, his, uh, in, in Salvation Army, at least. And it is considered one of his best speeches. So this is what he says. Uh, While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. Uh, now, to understand this passage, you have to know the context of, in which he was saying this. Uh, in, in the period of uh, post-industrial revolution, when there was a lot of poverty in cities, uh, the, the, the very stark uh, contrast between the rich and the poor, uh, and the gulf of distance between the rich and the poor, uh, that is when uh, poor were pushed into poor, girls were pushed into prostitution. Uh, there were huge mansions of the rich people, but outside there was a, there was a long queue of the poor begging, uh, looking for work. And this is when he started his ministry, and this is what he has to say, which continues to be the most inspiring quote uh, of William Booth uh, for his own denomination, at least. I think our world, like his world, suffers from poverty, hunger, addiction, and violence as much as his world did. And the church cannot afford to ignore its call to be prophetic community as it stands against the world. But how does standing against the world look practically? What do we do? What do I do? How do I stand against the world, you may ask? I think being against the world should lead us to at least two important practices in the church. One is personal holiness, and another one is prophetic ministry of justice. What we have seen in recent time, and this is my opinion, is that the church as a large, often ignores one at the cost of the other. <laughs> you see, there are churches where you go and there is a lot of emphasis on personal holiness. So we do a lot of stuff that encourages us to be personally holy before God. But there is ignorance of social justice. And on the other hand, there are churches where there is so much emphasis on social justice and nothing to be personally holy before God. Uh, I think the Bible doesn't see this, this contrast. The Bible doesn't even see this, uh, this duality, that, this bifurcation. Uh, the Bible, uh, this is how the Bible simply views it, that, uh, uh, that they are together, that they go hand in hand. In fact, both of them uh, relate so well, can be understood by the practice of Sabbath that we have been talking about. When we fast in a sense, and Kuhn has already said this, but it may be good to emphasize this, the fact that when we fast, we come closer to God because we open ourselves before God and let him speak, and at the same time, we stand for the poor. Uh, we, we experience what experiences they go through, and in this sense, social justice and personal holiness are not two different things, but they flow together. But standing with the world, so we stand with the world, we stand against the world. And in our daily life, we figure out how do I stand against the world. But we stand with the world, we stand against the world, but this is not enough because we can be prophetic, we can be, 
with the world, we can talk about social justice, we can talk about personal holiness, but I believe that the Bible also goes one step further and teaches us that we stand for the world. What do I mean by this? I add this uh, preposition, the word for. I stand for the world, which means that as citizens of the kingdom already not yet, I want the world to become what God would want it to become. I stand for the whole world because I want it to become what God would want the world to become. I seek redemption. We seek redemption as the community of God, as citizens of already not yet kingdom, that we seek redemption of the whole world. A few years back, uh, not a few years back, uh, in, in late, uh, late 1980s maybe, there was a book which became popular, which is called When the Kings Come Marching In. Uh, this is written by a man named Richard Mao. Uh, and he talks about, uh, he, the whole book is an explanation of Isaiah chapter 60, where you have the vision of the city of God, city of New Jerusalem. Now there's a very interesting thing that Mao does with this, uh, Richard Mao does this with texts of Isaiah chapter 16. He says that if you read the entire chapter of Isaiah 60, you will read the picture of what New Jerusalem is going to look like, but what is even more interesting as this, he notices that in this new Jerusalem, there are things. Now, we often think that heaven and God's kingdom is about souls, about us, about personal relationship. But he says in Isaiah chapter 60, there are things that are in the kingdom of God. And one of the things that catches his attention, and very interestingly, is a thing called, or is an object or an article called Ships of Tarshish. Now, the moment you heard the word Tarshish, you always remember Jonah. <laughs> he ran away from God. Uh, now, in those times, uh, ships of Tarshish was, were, were used to carry gold and silver from one country to another, very popular. Uh, they used to uh, exhibit not just the economic power, but also naval power of a country. Uh, it showed that if you have, it showed the naval power of Tarshish as a country and how. Uh, uh, how strong they were compared to other country. Now, if we read in the Old Testament, there are other passages such as Isaiah chapter 23, verse 1, and Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 12, where both Isaiah and Ezekiel pronounce judgment on the ships of Tarshish. And if you go a little further, or backwards, in fact, in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 48, God himself pronounces judgment on ships of Tarshish. God says, in fact, that this, he is going to destroy, he is going to break uh, the ships of Tarshish. Um, now, this is very interesting. If that is what God's attitude towards this article is, what are they doing in the New Jerusalem, you may ask? <laughs> Why are they there in the first place? Uh, in those times, if you connect also with Jonah, the story of Tarshish, you realize that somehow the city Tarshish refers to the fact that people are autonomous. People have ran away from God like Jonah. And ships uh, also tell us that people have run away from Jonah because they have found themselves to be self-sufficient. They are powerful enough to create these powerful ships. And therefore, they can be without God. 
And that is precisely why God pronounces judgment on them to tell them that human sufficiency is not enough. You need God. But not just that, by allowing the ships of Tarshish to be in the new city, God tells us that no matter how far an object has been used in rebellion against God, God has still power to redeem it. That is why the ships of Tarshish are in the city of Jerusalem. God counters our human autonomy. He counters our human self-sufficiency, but he also redeems them of the corruption that human agency has caused them. The ships of Tarshish, which have been, caused, uh, which have been polluted by human, autonomous, uh, human desire for autonomous, now they are redeemed from them and they are put in the city of God. This shows us that God cares about things because things are ultimately products of human intellect and skill, the same humans who are also made in the image of God. And now last Sunday, Kuhn talked to you about rugby. Uh, I am fan of cricket, but I'm not going to bother you with all the rules <laughs> because cricket is something that will take time to explain. <laughs> Uh, one surprising thing I can just mention, which is that sometimes people, in between the game, people go and take lunch, and then continue, and the next day they come back to the field and continue the game, and sometimes it can go for five days. That should be enough to warn you about <laughs> indulging in it, but I still indulge in it. So, <laughs> so um, I wonder sometimes what happens to the culture that we have created, like cricket, for example, the sports that we love, what happens to it in the kingdom of God? Does it disappear? Or let's take an example of the potluck that we are having today. <laughs> what happens to it, this whole, um, when we meet for potluck and we are here, uh, quite a multicultural church, we bring uh, the food from our cultures, this, this beautiful recipes we bring to the table and everybody loves to taste, get a taste of different cultures when they eat different food items. What happens to it in heaven? <laughs> Does this culture that humans have created just disappears because the kingdom have, has come? Or does it get uh, redeemed? I would like to believe that God is going to redeem our culture. God has started redeeming it. And that means our daily life, our mundane life, the objects that we use. And this should answer the question of people like John who asks me, like, what do I do with mathematics? How does it glorify God? <laughs> God begins to redeem even our education, our careers, our choices that we make in life. He redeems them and he brings them to his kingdom or he allows his kingdom values to permeate through our choices and through our life on earth. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the good news we have to give to the world, that God is interested in redeeming the whole world, our bodies, our cultures, our everything. It's not just throwing them away, but he's interested in it. I want to stand with this last quotation that I got from a man named Miroslav Wolf. He's a contemporary theologian, and he says this, and I think it applies to all of us. <laughs> to change the world, we need an I have a dream speech, not an I have a complaint speech. <laughs> so aptly applies to us. A lot of times we as Christians might be just complaining about what is going on in our lives. 
because sometimes we don't have vision for the redemption of the whole world. So I want to encourage you today, as you go from the church today, that think of your life, your mundane life, your daily life, which seems boring sometimes, <laughs> but God is able to redeem each and every part of our life, each and every thing in our life, what seems boring and mundane to us. To conclude then, today I spoke about three points, three postures. We stand with the world, we stand against the world, and we stand for the world. If you want to try out this model practically, I would suggest that you can perhaps ask yourself a question when you face an issue. In what ways do I stand with the world when I face this issue? How do I stand against the world when I face this issue? And how do I engage in redeeming the world? How do I redeem the world? And how do I get engaged in exercising that, that larger vision of redeeming the world through my daily life? But a clear understanding of God's vision for this world, the dream, is very important. So perhaps the first question we can ask ourselves is, what is our dream, of, dream for the world? What is the good news? What is this dream that I want to live with and I want to give to the world? May God give us wisdom and grace as we think about this question. Shall we stand for a moment and as worship team comes, in, I, I, comes to the stage, I would like to pray for us. Dear Lord, we are so grateful to you that we have the opportunity to know you. We thank you that we could come today and we thank you that you are alive, you're working in this world, you're slowly but surely redeeming the world. And we can be, do nothing but be part of that story, O oh God. Lord, as we allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us in this process of deciding where we stand with the world, when we stand against the world, and still how do we redeem the world. As we make our choices in life, help us to focus on this kingdom perspective and to get into this, get engaged into the process of redeeming the world, O oh Lord. As unworthy as we are, we surrender our lives to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.